Welcome back. Uh, Dr. Darity, please continue with, with your reparations observations. I think it's a real misnomer when people refer to slavery reparations. That's an inadequate description of what's at stake here. And I, I would say further that it's clear that slavery created the crucible for the kinds of disparities that we observe today, but slavery was not the only source mm -hmm. of those disparities. Yeah, you make that clear in some of your other writings that you've published, how slavery itself, I mean, there's so many different levels of, of grievous harm, but just, just the economic one, if we just focus on that one dimension, is, you know, so much about wealth is, you know, intergenerationally transferred, as you've observed. And obviously, if you are coming from a slave background, you don't have that type of wealth to to transfer to to the next generation. In your testimony, you actually uh, indicated that today black Americans constitute approximately uh, 13 to 14 percent of the nation's population, yet possess less than three percent of the nation's wealth. And therefore, you know, the, one of the core demands of reparation, you know, has to be to address this wealth inequality. And so do you have a cost when you have 3% of the nation's wealth being possessed by close to 14% of the nation's population, namely the black American population, what amount of, of reparations would get people back into some type of equal footing and, and such? Because I do want you to address also, I don't think you did it so much in your testimony, but there are a number of, of myths about the stereotypes of not working hard enough, you know, these types of things. And I've been really impressed by the way that your team has looked at, you know, similar um, or, or dissimilar college backgrounds, very, very well-educated African-Americans versus very uneducated, at least uh, with respect to not even graduating high school. And you see these discrepancies and such. But can you talk a little bit about some of the most damaging mythologies that you think perpetuate and don't bring as many Americans to the table demanding change for such an injustice? Well, I think that one of the, the central myths is the belief that the conditions that black Americans find themselves in are a consequence of their own behavior. And I think that that's a fairly widely held sentiment. I think it's actually a sentiment that's, that's, that's shared by some black Americans themselves. And so this is kind of what I refer to as the, the black dysfunction perspective. So that ultimately, blacks are treated as being responsible for the conditions that confront us. A significant part of the work that we've done, like what you mentioned just now, has been an attempt to try to address those kinds of beliefs. In my most optimistic moments, I think that people actually can be persuaded by good evidence, but I also know that people will frequently maintain an incorrect point of view despite the fact that you've offered them evidence that demands that they revise their position. But I, the op, my optimistic side prevails, you so I keep working on this. And there's a number of examples that you've already talked about that demonstrate that even when black folks do the right thing or do better than white folks in terms of motivation, effort, and accomplishment, that they still cannot manage to eliminate the racial wealth gap. So that it's not a matter of black behavior or any actions that are under the control of individual blacks. It really is a matter of there being a need for 
a massive program, a structural program that would alter the wealth position of black Americans. We can't move the needle very far from 3% share of national wealth to a 13 to 14% share of national wealth simply by black folks doing something different. Mm -hmm. It really is a matter of actually having a reparations program that would directly attack the gulf in racial wealth. Well, listen, we're visiting with Dr. William Darity from, from Duke University, and we're speaking on the issue of reparations in the most recent House committee bill that's trying to address the same that now has over 100 co-sponsors. This is bringing light into darkness so, Dr. Darity, when I review your testimony, your written testimony that you submitted to Congress on this reparations issue, you actually detail some eligibility requirements that you suggest. Before I go any further, though, I do want to say this. For folks that are interested, this is a one-hour radio show, and this is a very historically in-depth process of understanding that can't possibly be met without real study. And I'm Really excited about a book project that you and your partner, Kirsten Muller, are getting ready to uh, hopefully launch early next year from here to equality, reparations for black Americans. In the 21st century. And I'm, I'm wondering, are, are there chapters in the upcoming book that detail some of the history and some of the things that we are talking about so that someone that really might want to raise their IQ on, on all of the different dimensions that are connected to this might get a good read by getting through that book. Can you give us a snapshot of that without giving away, which I know you're reluctant to do, the, you know, the crux of your work? <laughs> yeah, so, so the book is called From Here to Equality, Black Reparations in the 21st Century. I think that on an earlier program, I mentioned that one of the things that would be a unique attribute of the book is it actually provides a description of how you might actually execute a reparations program. Mm -hmm. The largest portion of the book really is a historical project. Right. Places a heavy emphasis on what happened not only during slavery times, but what happened after slavery was over. And that's that's the way in which we attempt to build our case for reparations, is by paying very, very close attention to what happened in the aftermath of the Civil War, especially the denial of access to the land grants, but also the Jim Crow period mm -hmm. into the present wave of atrocities. Yeah, before I ask you to, to elaborate a little bit more on some of the reparation elements and stuff, I just can't share how important I feel history is to understanding what's really going on in the world. You know, I, I, I use the analogy sometimes. It's like me, I'm not very good at putting things together. And it's like getting, you know, something that you're trying to put together maybe for your, your child for Christmas or something like that, and you have to put it together. And so you take out the little book of directions, but it's missing like three pages, and it's only a four-page little deal. There's no way you're going to be able to put it together correctly, at least for me. And so I think the same is, can be said for history. If you don't have that history, then you're so easily herded like sheep in many ways into thinking ways that may be inappropriate to, to the real concerns of justice. But anyhow, can you just turn in these last three minutes that we have to the issues of the prerequisites for those folks that would be eligible for reparations and the total cost that you perceive that might incur and some of the ways to guarantee that only people that have really been fundamentally affected by this grievous history should, should receive those, those reparations? 
So forgive me if I start coughing because I've got a bit of a cold. Okay. But there have been two criteria for eligibility. The first is uh, an individual would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And the second criteria is that they would have to demonstrate that for at least 10 years before the enactment of a reparations program or the enactment of a study commission on reparations that they self identified as black, Negro, or African American. Mm -hmm. So those are the two criteria. The objective is to make sure that a reparations program targets black descendants of folks who were enslaved in the United States. And the the cost, the, the approximate cost, about how many folks do you think would be eligible based on those criteria in our country today if, if those criteria were met? So I estimate maybe about 35 million people mm-hmm. would be eligible. And the cost would be contingent on what the objective of the program is. Mm-hmm. If the objective, for example, is to eliminate the racial wealth gap, then if there's about $100 trillion in wealth in the U.S. economy, it would mean moving the share of black wealth from less than 3% to closer to 13 to 14%. Mm-hmm. So since uh, there's about $100 trillion, we're talking about moving from, say, $2.6 trillion to something of 13 to $14 trillion. So that's one way to think about it. Yeah. Well, listen, we, we are out of time, and that's what's so fascinating about your work to me, is not only the history component, but the economics component. You, you do your homework. It's out there for review. Your team has done a lot of economic types of estimates and, and stuff that can be quantified and, and, and measured scientifically for some type of ballpark accuracy and such. I just want to remind folks that we've had the great privilege of having a little bit under the weather, Dr. William Darity Jr. here with us, who currently serves as the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. Thank you so much for everything that you do, Dr. Darity. We'll look forward to following your work into the future. Thank you, uh, and, and thank you for having me on, and I hope to be on again in the future. Okay, we turn to these last two clips. They're both from the March 5th, 2018 show with uh, Dr. Darity. Thank you for emphasizing uh, the idea that the case for black American reparations is not anchored exclusively in slavery. And, uh, you know, I would argue that actually the case can be made even more ferociously by looking at the entire wave of injustices that occurred after slavery ended. And I think my starting point for the post-slavery case for reparations would be the failure to provide the formerly enslaved folk with an initial stake in the American economy. They were promised at various points either 40 acres or 80 acres of land per family. And in some tellings, they were promised a mule. If you look at Sherman's special order that was issued to to designate coastal lands along South Carolina, Georgia, and into Florida as as places where formerly enslaved folks would receive grants of tracts of 40 acres. I don't believe there's any any specific attention given to the mule, per se. But I think that the mule is actually a reference to implements for tilling the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40 acres is, is actually not a trivial amount of land because the typical 
residential home in the United States is located on about 0.2 acres of land. So you actually could, across the span of 40 acres, build a significant residential community. So this land is, is significant not only for the potential it had for farming in the 19th century, but for other types of uses of land that are now associated with major sources of wealth. So, so that would be my starting point. Then I guess the, the next phase of the story, from my perspective, involves the destruction of black participation in the American political process. Now, to be strictly accurate, it would be black male participation, because at the time of the 1870s through the end of the 19th century, women, whether black or white, were not granted the right to vote. So the vote, when we talk about it in the 19th century, the vote that was denied black Americans was a vote for black American men. But this had very, very significant consequences, because if we examine the experiences of the states that had Reconstruction-era legislatures that were heavily influenced by the desires of the formerly enslaved people, the kinds of policies that they adopted were vastly different from the policies that were adopted by legislatures that succeeded them that were uh, dominated by white supremacists who, who returned to power. Mm -hmm. So first is loss of land. Second is the denial of the, uh, the right to vote, which those two activities are sort of constitute a denial of full citizenship. To continue the process of the denial of black opportunity, we, we next need to look at the wave of white terror campaigns and massacres that occurred between the 1870s up until at least 1940, mm -hmm. in which communities in which black folks had acquired some degree of prosperity were destroyed, and there was a massive loss of life. It's interesting that 2018 is the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission report, which was focused on the urban uprisings in the 1960s, urban uprisings that took place in black communities. But there never was a commission put in place to examine the wave of white riots that took place for a period of close to 70 to 80 years in the United States, destroyed black lives and property. And Professor, so that would be another thing yeah. I would and Professor Darity, yeah, would you would you yeah. elaborate a little bit more about as to was this limited? I'm sure it was not limited to the South, but can you can you kind of give us a snapshot of of where these white riots and these types of pillaging of of uh, assets, I, I guess you would say, that many blacks had at the time, and some of the other mechanisms that that evolved out of that violence that continue to challenge and to rob African Americans of their of of some of their property. I, I know in one of the speeches that you gave, it was very interesting the discourse that you shared about how you know highways would go through certain communities that, that affected you know black communities more than white communities and such and and middle class types of income neighborhoods were completely uprooted in the process but or can you elaborate a little bit more on where these riots occurred yeah so one of the actually one of the earliest uh, white massacres actually took place in New York City and that took place during the course of the Civil War uh, it was ostensibly a riot that was spawned by draft resistance on the part of many of the white citizens in New York City. They viewed the war as one that was being fought on behalf of blacks, and so they attacked the black population of New York City in one of the great atrocities that took place in the North during the course of the Civil War. 
but if we look at the post-Civil War period, the phenomenon of white violence and white terror campaigns is actually a, a nationwide phenomenon. Right. If we were to consider summer of 1919, where people refer, refer to it as the red summer of 1919, mm-hmm. uh, the riot may have resulted in the greatest amount of damage and life, lives lost, although we don't have an accurate count because insofar as black lives don't really matter, an accurate count of the number of blacks who were actually killed in these riots is really hard to come by. But probably the greatest amount of lives lost and property damage took place in Chicago, in the Chicago riot of 1919. But it also took place, these, these riots took place in 30 other cities, many of which were in the South, but, but definitely not all of them. Uh, so I would talk about these white terror campaigns as being very much uh, a national phenomenon rather than a regional phenomenon. Can you also just share the experience on the West Coast? Well, definitely throughout the period when Oregon was making the transition to becoming a state, we sometimes refer to sundown towns in the United States. And these are towns in which black folks have to be out of the city or out of the municipality by the time the sun goes down. Otherwise, their lives are going to be taken. So this is a rule of thumb. It's a a way of enforcing segregation even if you need black people to work for you. They can only work for you during the course of daylight hours. So we refer to those as sundown towns, but Oregon was a sundown state. It had a legal exclusion of blacks from becoming residents of the state. And that exclusion, even though it was not strictly enforced, actually stayed on the books in the Oregon Constitution until the 20th century. So, you know, Oregon, far west, a state that's on the coast of the Pacific, also a state in which white supremacy prevailed. Mm -hmm. I did want to ask you to briefly highlight, at some point, actually, slavery was legal, but it was still immoral. It was still a way of economic uh, strangulation and that type of thing. But you've written and you've spoke eloquently about the evolution of different forms of oppression, such as how the Jim Crow was kind of like a legal forms of segregation and, and such and discrimination, how that continued to exercise its force in demeaning uh, the, the prospects for black lives. Can, can you elaborate on that? The transformation from an overt slavery type of oppression to other forms of, of unfairnesses that disproportionately affected African Americans but were legal. So the the regime of legal segregation didn't necessarily mean an absence of contact, but it did dictate that contact took place on certain terms, terms in which the black participant in the interaction would be maintained in a subservient position. You know, in the South, there's a tremendous amount of interaction between blacks and whites and always has been. There was under slavery, but there was a, a pattern of hierarchy that was was enforced. And it was enforced strictly in the aftermath of slavery in the form of the what we may call American apartheid. And, and there's some debate on whether South Africa or the United States had it first. Apparently, there was communication between folks in both countries about how best to maintain the scheme of oppression of black people. But I think it is legitimate to refer to what we had in the United States as a system of apartheid. But in a, a system of apartheid doesn't mean that you do not have any contact. Mm-hmm. It just means that the terms of the contact are such that one group is on top and the other is on bottom. And by being on the bottom, this could have effects that are associated with things that we call microaggressions. And by microaggressions, I mean 
indignities that are imposed upon an individual or a group of people that do not necessarily threaten life and limb, but they erode their spirit. Mm. But these indignities also could be macroaggressions, and perhaps the most dramatic chain of macroaggressions, apart from the massacres that I was talking about, is the lynching trail. And this is another signal. I mean, the young people who have labeled their movement Black Lives Matter have a powerful point, because historically in the United States, black lives have not mattered as much as white lives. And that continues to be the case. I would argue that the lynching trail has been transformed into a police execution trail today, where many, many, on many occasions, we now have become aware of something that has been going on for a long time, which is, uh, you know, the police executing unarmed black people. In this last clip, which is from the same date, March the 5th, 2018, President Obama is criticized for projecting what Dr. Darity and his team have dismissed as a false narrative regarding the role of personal responsibility regarding African-American quality of life situation. There was a piece that you did in The Atlantic, I think it was in December of 2016, and you were, you were chastising the president, uh, President Obama. And on this show, we try to be very fair, and we were stunned by the fact that, that there was increased wealth disparity under the Obama administration of eight years, despite what we would, would have predicted, that there was greater wealth, the pie got bigger, but the actual wealth disparity also got worse. But your concern in your piece, or at least one of the concerns, had to do with this putting the burden completely off of society and placing it on on some stereotypical interpretations that African Americans were not being personally as responsible as they might should be according to some of, of Obama's repeated types of comments. Can you elaborate a little bit on what disturbed you so much about this kind of representation and, and how you can show that it's not a, a correct or fair a portrayal? Yeah, so I think actually it was, from my perspective, it was somewhat sad to have the first known black president in the United States actually parrot arguments that are very closely linked to the positions that many of the white supremacists would take about black behavior. And I think it was, you know, it was extremely disturbing to, to watch that take place, especially because those beliefs and attitudes are not supported by the evidence. So let's take one example. I've already mentioned that greater educational attainment does not have the same payoff in terms of associated wealth for blacks as it does for whites. But nevertheless, gaining more education is the primary way in which blacks might have a chance to have a more economically secure future in the United States. And so frequently people say that blacks aren't really that motivated to obtain education. But, you know, the, the, the evidence demonstrates quite the opposite, that if anything, there's more evidence of a greater degree of motivation on the parts of blacks to acquire additional education than there is on the part of whites. Um, so one illustration of this is the fact that if you take into account household income, black youths tend to get more years of schooling and more credentials than white youths from similarly situated households in terms of level of income. Another piece of evidence that's indicative of uh, the relatively greater motivation to obtain education on the part of blacks is the fact that black parents who provide some financial support for their kids' higher education 
have one-third of the net worth of white parents who provide no support Mm -hmm. for their kids' higher education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is sort of the classic example of which is which is a is an example that's repeated over and over again. Black folks doing more with less, and so if we just look at education alone, conventional claims about irresponsibility, et cetera. Uh, if anything, the conclusion we'd have to reach is that whites are more irresponsible with respect to the pursuit of higher education, and so you know, kind of the standard narrative is not is not is not borne out by the facts. And we, and we could go down the line with many, many beliefs that people have about behavior. Another one is the, the claim that blacks don't save enough, and this is why black levels of wealth are so low, when in fact, if you take into account levels of income, the black savings rate is generally at least as high as the white savings rate. In some income categories, it's higher. I think there's a statistic that was generated from the survey of consumer finances that indicated that typically, if you take into account blacks and whites are in the same range on the income scale, whites spend 1.3 times more than blacks do. So again, if anybody's being profligate, relatively speaking, it's going to be whites. So I, I guess I'm not so concerned about trying to charge whites with being irresponsible as I am with erasing the claim that blacks are uniquely irresponsible. And how did President Obama misportray uh, that reality in, from your perspective? Well, I mean, either he isn't aware of the evidence that challenges the personal responsibility narrative, or the uglier possibility, which I hope is not true, is he ignored it for political purposes. So I, I guess what you were suggesting in the paper, in your article in The Atlantic, was that he actually spoke to this concern or, or this irresponsibility uh, on a rather frequent, in, in a frequent way? Is, is that? Uh, sure. Uh, and, and, and maybe one of the most striking examples is the speech he gave at the Morehouse College commencement. Other examples include his perpetual use of the character Pookie as kind of representative of uh, the black person who, who doesn't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Obama also talked about the importance of young men pulling their pants up, which was kind of a symbolic claim about engaging in respectable behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I don't necessarily have anything against engaging in respectable behavior. The problem is when blacks do the right thing, it does not have the effect of closing the huge economic disparities that we're talking about. All right. That's our show. That's uh, Dr. William Darity, the premier economist on this issue of reparations. Again, you can get a copy of this show and study it at pedrogatos.org. I would encourage you to listen to the June 8th show. The June 8th show and this show are a part one and two show connected to the George Floyd death and getting at the crux of the issue. We'll see you next week. All comments are welcomed at pgatos00 at gmail.com. Join the pursuit for social justice.